everyone, welcome to Lawyer Up Podcast. This is your host, John Ting. We have a distinguished guest today. She is a children's program director at Human Rights Initiative. Uh, she received her bachelor's of management in Boston College and went to New England School of Law. Uh, upon graduation from Boston College, where she earned a, ma- a Bachelor of Science in Management, she obtained a degree and master's of master's degree in uh, social in social work. Actually, so she became a licensed social worker uh, after she graduated from Florida State University. In her practice now, she has u- utilized those skills, and she's actually licensed to practice in Texas and Massachusetts. Uh, from what I know, most of her legal experience is in, is in Texas. She previously worked at Mosaic Family Services. At Mosaic, she focused on victims of domestic violence, uh, victims of human trafficking, and uh, victims of sexual abuse. She will talk about her experience uh, from both of those um, positions and share all specifically her experience uh, working in a nonprofit. Impressively, she oversees at least 100 pro bono attorneys who um, serve her clients at HRI for children who have been either abandoned, neglected, or abused, and that's caused them to flee their home country. And additionally, she's been awarded the Outstanding Co-Chair Award from the Dallas Young Lawyers Association and also received the Rising Raggio Award uh, from the Dallas Women's Lawyers Association. So this shows how uh, exemplary um, uh, she is. She currently serves on the board of Hart House. Little known fact, she's always wanted to be an attorney since she was seven years old. I don't know if I believe that, but we'll hear from her. In her free time, she loves to hang out with her nieces and nephews and read, hike, and of course, fight injustice. Uh, that primarily takes up most of her time. Well, our next guest, her name is Anna Rupani. I'm very proud of her accomplishments as a as a young attorney, and I know she has a lot to provide to our immigrant communities. Without further ado, let's get to our interview with Anna and watch movies and travel. Our next guest is uh, the Children's Program Director at Human Rights Initiative. She previously worked at Mosaic Family Services, where she coordinated cases and worked on cases of victims of abuse, domestic uh, domestic abuse, uh, sexual abuse, and also uh, victims of human trafficking. Uh, now, since she transitioned to HRI uh, to focus on servicing uh, clients who are children, specifically unaccompanied minors who travel to America without a parent. Um, she uh, does significant work where she oversees over 100 pro bono attorneys that help with children who have been abused, uh, either abandoned, abused, or neglected uh, sometime during their life. And so that has caused them to enter the United States. <clears throat> she, uh, this is my dog, by the way. His name's Ron. He's cute. Also, I love this mug. He, uh, he's employee of the year since like 2015. Has it already been that long? No, it hasn't been that long since you moved. Oh, yeah, had we've had this dog since, um, since uh, we were in Dallas. Mm-hmm. 
you know, in 2018, there's a lot of denials um, or a lot of, there's a lot of denials and not a lot of approvals in the children's world. Um, and like, just talk about ever since the Trump administration came in, there were lots of rejections, but um, work attorneys do is helpful because after several attorneys filed cases and things got enjoined, even in like the 11th circuit or the 9th circuit, um, you saw a change back in approvals. So I think like in 2018, there's only 4,000 approvals for SIDGE. Oh, wow. Like 4,700 in comparison to like, um, yeah, it was like 4,700, 4,700 approvals total in 2018. In comparison, like you had 1,700 denials. But in 2016, for example, there was 15,000 approvals. So like, and it was 11,000 in 2017. So you see like from 15,000, Trump administration comes in 2017, so it's 11,000. And then in 2018, it's 4,700. You're right. So they're, it goes down pretty were, significantly. They like made the more of the definitions like more stricter, right? The meaning also mm -hmm. like and more case now. Yeah, and then um, you had many people like even in our office, we filed a we filed several federal district court appeals on particular cases, and so then you saw a change in the way they were analyzing the cases again, and then it went up to 23,000 approvals the year after. Right, so advocacy, you know, through litigating is very important as well. <clears throat> 100%. And, you know, in nonprofit, do you team up with other private law firms to, to help with that? Or do you take it on your own, at least with Human Rights Institute? Yeah, so HRI is kind of a unique nonprofit because we work under the pro bono model. So most of the cases our office takes in, we assign them to pro bonos and oversee pro bonos. So for example, my program, which is a children's program and I'm the children's program director, I have over 140 cases and a hundred of them are um, farmed out to pro bono attorneys. So I oversee 100 pro bono attorneys and then I house 40 cases. Um, and the 40 cases I house are unique because those 40 cases tend to be children that are um, from super traumatized backgrounds or children that have come through the long-term foster care shelter under the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Um, and so they tend to be a little bit more um, need of trauma-centered work and trauma-focused trauma initiatives, um, which is hard when you have multiple meetings with them and then give it to a pro bono. 100 pro bono attorneys, that's an impressive database there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I don't even have the numbers in front of me, but I think with pro bono attorneys and volunteers, um, HRI had thousands of hours donated last year. Um, I want to say it was closer to 10,000 or more um, between volunteers and pro bono attorneys, but it was several thousand hours donated. And from my understanding, the nonprofit world or the entity or uh, funding you have to provide those, you have to ask those attorneys or other volunteers for their hours, right? Yeah, so every pro bono attorney that we have donates all of their hours. So this is something they're doing um, outside of the legal work they have to do. Um, so for example, at larger law firms, you have an billable hours which you have to meet. So that means a set number of hours you have to meet in the course of your year at work there. So if it's 2000 hours, you have to do 2000 hours total over the course of the year. Um, and if you end up spending 500 hours on say one of my cases, 
that doesn't count towards your 200 hours. Maybe some of it counts, but not all of it. And so you're donating your time and your hours for free um, to make sure that um, individuals at, at our organization are having their voice heard. Um, so to give you some context, HRI is a nonprofit that works with survivors of human rights abuses. So we don't just work with children who are victims of trauma, um, abandonment, or neglect. We also work with asylum seekers and we work with survivors of crime. And so all of those hours are donated for individuals who suffered some kind of human rights abuse. And so that's where that goes. And how many attorneys work with your office? Um, so there's three of us that are in charge of our program. So one in, in charge of each program. So I'm in charge of the children's program. We have an attorney that's in charge of the asylum program. And then we have an attorney that's in charge of the crime victims program. Um, although we have five, six attorneys on staff, um, we have a fellow who's working under the asylum program and we have an advocacy director. And then the executive director is also a licensed attorney. And I think his name is Bill Holston. All right, great. Bill is it. the executive director for Human Rights Initiative. That he's done in his career, so glad he's uh, leading the charge with your group. <laughs> uh, let's see here. So uh, you mentioned the um, the denial rate. Now, can you give us an example? Well, the denial rate is in part because of some new case law through time, the past four years. Um, can you give us an example yes. the, of what they've de defined more strictly? Yeah, so um, in the last couple of years, or I guess last almost four years, um, you've seen the change in immigration law, not just in working with children, but working in asylum and working with survivors of crime um, to like something as small as nitpicking as a birth certificate, um, which um, for example, if you go online and you're trying to submit an immigration application, it says what things you need to include in an immigration application. Um, and it says birth certificate from home country. Um, there's an asterisk there that says it can be X form. Um, well, for example, Honduras, like the US has two different birth certificates. They have the long form birth certificate and the regular birth certificate that we all know and love, which is pretty simple. It has your name, your date of birth, where you were born, your parents' names, maybe the hospital you were born in, um, maybe, your, maybe your footprint. Um, but that's about it. That's your short form birth certificate that all of us know. Um, Honduras has the same. They also have a long form birth certificate. I've never seen my own personal long form birth certificate in the US. I doubt most of us have. So it's unlikely in other foreign countries, uh, most individuals have seen their long-form birth certificate. But now, if you don't submit your long-form birth certificate, they're either saying, sorry, your application's being denied for not providing the proper evidence, or sorry, we're requesting more evidence and you have to provide us this long-form birth certificate. The problem with that is, to obtain this long-form birth certificate, you can only do it in the home country. So you have to know someone in your home country, so in Honduras, for example, to get that birth certificate for you. And if you have no one there, it becomes nearly impossible because you can't get it from the consulate. So it's just one example of how they've defined and started changing kind of the way they're um, reviewing cases. Another well, way is, go ahead, sorry. Well, I say, yeah, I remember sometimes for me, I have we have to file the packages anyway, even at the short form. But we recommend clients to go ahead and re order their long form in the meantime. And uh, yeah, I remember when I tried to help HRI help you guys here in Houston, and that was very difficult. Even though the people working there seemed like they wanted to help me because we we came back later that day, but then somehow they just yeah get it done for us for some reason it just seemed like a lot of bureaucracy a lot of steps mm -hmm. 
And my, unfortunately, my client was never able to obtain that birth certificate because she was from Guatemala and John was graceful, graceful enough and great. And I'm so grateful to it that he attempted to go to the embassy or the consulate multiple times to get this birth certificate for us. Our client came down to Houston and tried three different times on her own, um, never able to secure a birth certificate. Um, And so she was unable to secure that birth certificate and her green card was denied. Yeah, fortunately, I mean, sorry to hear about your client in that situation. Fortunately, uh, we've had some clients that knew someone in their home country, birth country to help out, but you know, sometimes- it, But that's not always the case, right? Sometimes exactly. your families have left or people have passed on. That's, um, yeah, that's and so a, that's why- that's requirement. Yeah, making it so stringent on a long form versus a short form, um, when both of them have been registered with the country, um, it just seems like it's being tedious and it's being done to to, um, it, it's a, it seems like they're doing that just to hurt the cases, right? They're defining right. small it's little a, rules to deny a case. It's a tactic to deny the case outright, essentially. Yeah, we, and so it's been really unfortunate um, because we've seen that across the board, not just in our office, but in other organizations that do this kind of work. Now, I, um, I know you mentioned that you don't, you personally don't do so much of the asylum work here director of the UAC department, right? The children's program. And, but in general, even with the, you know, most immigration lawyers know that there's a new policy or maybe it's a de facto policy where at least on asylum applications and victim uh, uh, visa applications like the 918, they are requiring everyone to put, you know, the letters NA for non-applicable. Are you seeing that for your I-360s for SIDGE? Um, so we haven't seen that. I personally haven't seen that, but I have heard other providers that do this work actually have that issue where if they didn't write not applicable or NA in some areas, um, then that would, that would potentially be a reason to deny the case. Um, I think they're trying to be a little bit more lenient towards children as much as possible. Um, although I can see that they're not being lenient because again, a child is being asked to get a certificate from a home country that they no longer live in. So um, I've always put it into practice because I used to do 918s um, and I-360s for uh, Violence Against Women's Act. Um, And so I made it practice to do NA as a general rule um, on most of my cases because of that. But yes, I, I, I haven't seen that happen in my own cases, but I have heard other providers say that they have seen that in children's cases. And uh, for those in the audience, another practice tip is to put, there's that section for um, the applicant's information in their native language. If they don't have something in a different language, I would just go ahead and put NA as well. Uh, Cause I've heard of another colleague friend that got their application returned because I didn't put that in there. Because you know, yeah. in, the, in the modern day, just like yesterday, we didn't have to do that. So it's just strange. Right. You know? Every officer is different that reviews the case, unfortunately. And I mean, like when you talked about, you know, native language, like if you submit a document that has any kind of foreign language on it and you don't send a translated version of that document, um, they can say they never received that document because you technically didn't give it to them in the way they Mm -hmm. asked for it, um, Mm -hmm. which is also frustrating because sometimes it can take a lot of time to get translators on board but you have deadlines you have to meet either by age or expiration of documents um and so you know um sometimes you submit what's known as a bare bones form um so you submit whatever you have and then try to supplement later um which was good in common practice um 
I don't know, from like 2008 to 2016, pretty much, maybe even 2006 to 2016, um, but became uncommon and poor practice 2016 and 2017 and onwards. Um, so if you didn't provide most of the application or all of the, all of the application outside of just the um, form that needs to be signed, so evidence, um, you could and potentially would see um, USCIS deny the application or deny the outright um, relief, form of relief. Is there anything that you've, uh, you've observed with your own cases or your, your coworkers <clears throat> or cases that have been issued RFE that, that we haven't discussed already? Yeah, so um, children um, are unique because children um, can't always make their own decision. Um, and immigration treats children very differently. So um, the work I do is um, under with unaccompanied children. Um, and so we apply for what's known as a special immigrant juvenile status. It's a type of visa that's available for children who've been neglected, abandoned, and or abused by one or both of their parents in their home country, um, and that it would be unsafe for them to return back to their home country. Uh, but in order to qualify for this um, particular status, you have to first get a family court finding um, of abuse, neglect, and or abandonment, um, and kind of that you're under 18, that you aren't married, that it would be unsafe for you to go back to your home country, and so forth. Um, but as you know, family law is different in each state. And so if I'm in California, I can technically get a family court order until I'm 21. But in Texas, you can only get a family court order until you're the age of 18. And so the application of immigration law on family law basis is not uniform, and it makes it difficult. And so um, we have seen an increase in requests for evidence and notices of intent to deny based on things like the child was 18 when you got the family court order, so Texas didn't have jurisdiction over the child. Um, even though the child was in school, completely dependent on the mom um, or dad, couldn't work. I mean, everyone referred to this individual as a child. Um, and so we've seen a lot of requests for evidence on that. Right, it just depends um, on the date of birth. They could still be a senior or something in high school. Right. Even juniors, if they're coming from Central American country. Yeah. Right. And family law in Texas says family courts have authority over you uh, until the age of 18 or you graduate high school, whichever comes later. And yeah. so technically, if you graduate at 20, family courts still have a vested interest in your custody case. Um, and so, you know, and so it, it can be difficult because you have to kind of try to explain that law to USCIS. Um, and USCIS has tended to say, well, no, that's only for child support purposes. But if you look into family law a little bit more, there are exceptions to that, right? Um, and so you have to be able to find those exceptions and explain those exceptions, which we didn't have to do before. Um, it was pretty clear cut, like, hey, this child's still in high school. This child is still dependent on the system as, as though he or she was under 18. Have, um, you, have you seen any case law in Texas uh, highlighting that or trying to counter the um, US argument on that? Well, <laughs> USCIS did, so there's, there's a case that came out in late 2018 called Budetaki, and that actually hurt a lot of kids' cases because what they said was, if you're getting a court order specifically for child support, case, child support purposes, you can't apply for special immigrant juvenile status, which I totally understand because it's technically not a custody order. Mm -hmm. um, but there's been pushback on that, and we've seen approvals 
for 19 or 20 year olds um, when they got their family court orders, if we were able to show and highlight things that show their dependency on the court systems and their adult parents. Um, so we had a 20 year old who um, was completely dependent on mom um, during her school years and didn't graduate high school until right about 21. Um, and, but she was under the custody order and we got it right when she turned 18, um, like maybe two months after she turned 18 due to service issues. Um, and, um, but we were able to get school notes and documents highlighting how they treated this particular individual as a child in school, that they never talked to that child um, as if she was an adult, right? They always called mom if there were bad grades, if the child missed school, if something was going on. Parent-teacher like conferences were with the parents, so. Like you got some kind of declaration affidavit to ask the school personnel to, um, like the procedures, essentially. Yeah, and we had, like, we got letters and affidavits um, and we showed notes that were sent home. So, um, you know, mm -hmm. they were titled to mom, they weren't titled to the child, even though the mm -hmm. child was technically an adult. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it does mean that we have to do a lot more administrative work and we have to find different pieces of evidence, um, kind of the squares and try to fit them into the circles, um, and see how we can make that work. Um, and so each case might have taken 20 or 30 hours before, but now it takes 40 or 50 hours. Um, and so that means there's less people to help. Um, not that there's not enough people to help. It's just we can't help as many people because we have only so many hours in a day that we can right, get. Right. Well, there's a lot to, I mean, in general, there's a lot to talk about, right, in, in this area of law. But in terms of, you mentioned hours. Um, you work in nonprofit with HRI. Do you... You know, when lawyer when lawyers think about hours, they think about billable hours. Yeah. I don't know if you're allowed to share this, but do you do you track the number of hours you work on a case? I mean, you have an estimate, right? You you just mentioned forty, but um, do, does so, funding require you to mention that? Yeah. So sort of. Um, so we do track for the children's program. We're under a specific grant, so we do have to track kind of how many hours a month we spend working on UC stuff. Um, so unaccompanied children work. Um, but I can tell you that the amount we say we are going 20% over that ceiling <laughs> every single time. Um, and it's some, that ceiling, that ceiling increases. So if it's hundred percent is what we're getting paid for, for example, um, I, I've been told that we are at this point, we're reaching 125%. So technically we're 25% over what we said we would be doing. Um, and that means, so that, I mean, that just shows that we're doing so much more than we said we were, right? Um, or so much more than we thought we would do in terms of hours. Um, <clears throat> I would say, like, there are many days that um, go onwards of, you know, 10 hour, 12 hour days when things can be really crazy. Um, and immigration reviews a lot of cases, and I see a lot of approvals or denials or requests for evidence all at once for some reason. And so I remember, I think I got 10 noids in a matter of a month. Um, and that's a lot because you only have about 30 days to respond to them. Um, right. So it, for, for the audience, uh, annoyed is an acronym for notice of intent to deny. And I think Anna mentioned it earlier, but it's basically like your last straw chance. And it's a short deadline. And I know uh, request for evidence Come, usually comes before that if they even give that to you issue if that they give that to you and um and but usually those are about 87 days if i recall correctly but yeah noids are much shorter time 
And sometimes yeah, people a, have issues with their mailbox if they don't, if they represent themselves. So, I mean, that's a one good reason to have representation, whether it's through a nonprofit or a private attorney. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's exactly it. Like I, and especially with COVID it's mail delays have been, caused an issue. Um, and so, um, you know, I remember that I got a notice of intent to deny that was 10 or 11 days, and that had nothing to do with us. It was, that's when USPS got it to us, but it was 10 or 11 days after the date that was on the letter. Mm -hmm. Um, and you have 30 days from the date on the letter. So mm -hmm. I already had 10 or 11 days cut off of my time. Um, mm -hmm. and then, you know, trying to get the client and explain what this is, trying to help the client understand what evidence I need, get the client back there to sign documents, affidavits, get affidavits from everyone else. And then also mail it back in time, um, right. was, yeah. can be hard. Um, but hard more important to the client, to be honest, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether it's nonprofit or private world, but, um, yeah, it's a serious thing. And you would think that with technology that USCIS could just email it to us because they do have an online status database, but you know, it's quite strange. It is. And I mean, like, I remember right before everything shut down in March, we had a notice of intent to deny due early March. Uh, it was probably mid-March. It was due right around like March 20th. Um, we got it in February, the tail end of February, it was due March 20th. Um, we mailed it March 17th, two-day, two-day USPS. Um, it did not get into USCIS's hands until March 23rd for some reason. Mm -hmm. And that's probably due to, and, and, and everyone talked about how there's mail delays everywhere across the nation during the early stages of COVID. Um, and USCIS said, sorry, you didn't respond to your request for evidence denied. Um, or notice of intent to deny. So they just denied it outright. But um, so then, okay, right? Because I think it was in April, they sent out an announcement that anything in between a certain time period in March. Given they said if the notice was dated March 1. Oh, right. Yeah, that's why you said February for yours. And my notice was unfortunately like February 18th or 19th. Um, but it was due between those times, which is, you know, frustrating because it should have been kind of clocked into that too um, and considered, um, but they did not consider that. Um, and so they denied it. And so then we had to file an appeal on the kid's case to say that we timely filed it and had to get notice and do an affidavit and all this other stuff. Um, and, and so it can be frustrating because um, when you're looking just at the hardline rules and not trying to understand the entire circumstance, um, you know, in, in my case, a child, child's life is on, in, their, in their hands. Um, and it could mean that the child is forced to go back to um, their home country, which has a lot of gang violence, which has a lot right. of trafficking. Right. Um, I mean, so the government is just black and white, letter to the law and policy and procedure, right? But on, right. for us, on the other hand, as attorneys, for the client, uh, you, you know, we do a lot of advocacy in different ways, you know, like just trying to get the document to respond to evidence, you know, a pro tip for um, that you likely have done yourself is, you know, we check the case status online, uscs.gov. We just happen to check, right? And this case had been pending for at least two years. And it said issued or mailed request for evidence, but we had not received it probably be three weeks. And we discussed the March 1st situation, the policy starting that time. This one I remember was in like late February as well. And 
fortunately we were able to respond in time, but to get that document, I never got in the mail. I got it because I re requested it uh, from Dallas field office. <laughs> I, I sent an email. So for those who are attorneys, please to get these emails from different directors, the best way is associate with, you know, um, other attorneys in your field, immigration attorneys, let's say Dallas, we have a Dallas immigration Facebook group and one for Houston as well. But uh, the greater organization is ALA, American Immigration Lawyers Association. But just a quick plug for those groups. Yeah, and I mean, I will say advocacy is helpful and, you know, talking to other attorneys is helpful. Um, as laws change, there's attorneys that focus on particular areas of the law, in immigration even, or particular areas um, or particular types of visas, and so they know them better and trying to get their help. Um, I used to do family law prior to just doing predominantly immigration, um, and I, so I have a lot of knowledge in family law, so it's really helpful when individuals are like, hey, I need to fix this family court order for special immigrant juvenile status because I got a request for evidence. How do you do that? Um, and so it is helpful to kind of know the areas of law and use your resources. Um, the work we do in the nonprofit world, um, you know, we're only able to get it done because we're able to have access to hundreds of attorneys that are willing to give their hours. Um, I'll, I will tell you that our office filed two federal district court appeals last year, um, and we would not have been able to do that. We did it alongside um, a larger firm. And so had they not taken on um, the bulk of the work and we were able to sign on, on it, sign off on it and add into the brief and to the complaint, um, we probably wouldn't have had a successful um, case there. Well, well, glad to have that you, your uh, HRI does have these uh, collaborations, I guess. Sometimes it's tricky to say partnerships, but we can call it community <laughs> partnerships. Um, you know, just talk about the nonprofit sector. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, part of the audience is for younger and less experienced attorneys, but let's say someone's coming out of law school. You know, what, is, what are, do you have any tips for someone to apply to a nonprofit? Because, I mean, I don't want to assume it's different than a big law or. No, so. yeah, it, it actually is though, right? Um, so nonprofits, there aren't that many. So the jobs are far and few in between. Um, if you're in law school or coming right out of law school, I suggest volunteering with these nonprofits and getting to know the individuals in these nonprofits. Um, because the way you get a job with a nonprofit is being able to show the dedication to the work. Um, the work is different. The work is unique and true. Like, I mean, this is true, right? We do not get paid as much as other attorneys do. And so you have to show the dedication to the work. Um, because if you don't, then it's harder to get a job there. Uh, and so the individuals that are doing this work are doing it because they really are passionate about it. And they truly care about the cause. I have been working with survivors of crime and violence. Um, and human rights abuse almost the entirety of my legal career. Um, and part of that is because I focused my legal education on public interest work, but that is not what everyone does. Um, but the way I got, and I didn't go to law school here and I didn't go to undergrad here, even though I'm from the Dallas area, I left for a very long time. And the only way I got in, in, into the public interest sector was I took the Texas bar exam. Um, and because I was what felt like brand new back to Texas, um, I started volunteering with a nonprofit in the Dallas area while I was awaiting bar exam results. And it just so happened once I passed the bar exam, they had a job um, opening. And because I dedicated all these hours without pay and showed that I cared about this work, I was offered the job. Um, and I've been in the public interest sector since. Uh, and so showing dedication, you can volunteer without doing legal work there, or you can volunteer legal hours. Um, you, you know, most schools, 
Um, a lot of law schools require public service hours and so doing public service hours with a particular nonprofit and showing dedication there can be really helpful too. Yeah, I think the, the whoever's like hiring manager or supervisor, they see you quite often and have provided a lot of value over that time volunteering, you know, mm-hmm. that spot opens up, it's yeah. probably going to be yours, you know, especially yeah, and, when they had time to work with you. I think that's key. Yeah. They've been able to communicate back and forth. That's, that's critical for any job, right? So that's, that's great advice. You actually went to, I might say it wrong, but I know you're from, you went to Boston. Was it Boston U? So I went to Boston College for undergrad and then I went to New England Law um, for my law degree. And I do have a master's in social work from Florida State. So I kind of did lots of different areas before I came back. That's my fault. My cousin went to the other school. BU? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. What we said at BC was sucks to be you. (laughs) Yeah, they're the the Eagles, right? Boston College Eagles, yeah. Okay. I'll try to have a good memory. Uh, Um, Well, just to take a step back for your individual self, what propelled you to become a lawyer, let alone the (laughs) public interest part? Yeah, no, um, I don't know what propelled me. (laughs) Yeah, I don't even know what propelled me to become a lawyer, to be honest. Um, I remember when I was seven years old, and I can only say this because I found my box of like old things, and I can confirm this happened, but when I was seven, I was asked to write on a piece of note card and then draw what I wanted to become um, when I was older. And I wrote lawyer and I drew, drew a gavel and I was super excited about it. And I don't know if I just held on to that note card mentally and decided that's what it was going to be. Um, but it was very much, I wanted to be a lawyer since I was seven. I can't remember why I said that. Um, but as I got older, I really enjoyed understanding the intricacies of arguments and kind of understanding how one argument can be swayed in two different ways. Um, And so I was on the debate team in high school too, and that was really helpful. Um, And so I can't tell you what exactly propelled me, but um, the excitement of it, of trying to come up with arguments on the spot was really helpful, um, speaking out loud and all of that, the improv of it, I guess. Right. Yeah, just having friends who are married to each other and they're both lawyers, I think that's quite... um, (laughs) That's quite an accomplishment in of itself, right? But um, since everyone loves to argue in their own ways, but yeah, you're right. There's one set of facts, and at the end of the day, if you look at on a brief, it it could go either way. Yeah. So that's why everyone's excited when they're waiting for uh, SCOTUS opinions, right? And that's exactly it, right? Like I count down the days every time I'm waiting for a decision. I'm like, oh my god, this is so exciting, and right. you know, and that's right. the lawyer nerd in us. But it's it's fun. And well, it's not of, for everyone, that part. Right. Well, speaking of SCOTUS decisions, several just came out last week or two <laughs> related to immigration. Is yeah. there anything that you'd like to speak on? I mean, there's so much to discuss, but something you'd like to share that may affect um, the world, at least your client base? Um, well, so DACA um, just kind of got prolonged for a little bit longer. Um, and we're also kind of trying to figure out what that means for new applications and so forth. Um, but the, I mean, the reality is, is the Supreme Court can have a say on immigration, depending on how Congress kind of enacts laws. Um, and if you read the Supreme Court decision based on DACA, a lot of it is saying you can't say whether or not 
the actual executive order was done so rightfully or wrongfully. That's not what they ruled on. What they ruled on was how it was rescinded. Um, and so they ruled on the rescission of the executive order was arbitrary. It was done arbitrarily and capriciously. And so basically they said, sorry, you can't do it this way. If you don't want this to exist, you have to go through these channels. Go ahead. Do you think that um, Trump administration will issue like a new reasoning, new policy reason to deny it again? I I, I think they well. Go ahead. Sorry, it's because a lot of uh, a lot of practitioners are trying to figure that out for their clients, honestly. Because um, I mean, I haven't checked the past couple of days, but I don't think USCS or DHS has issued a statement saying yes or no about those applications, initial applications. The new applications, yeah, yeah, yeah. So none of us know if initial applications are gonna be accepted, like new initial applications. We haven't seen anything. What we have advised individuals that may be eligible for DACA is to start gathering documents so that if they say yes, it might only be a month time frame or a short window. And if you at least get it in during that time, then right. you've met in the window um, instead of having to you know, try to gather documents later and then it becomes delayed. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, you, you and I know that whether it's private world or nonprofit clients, you know, they're busy with life. So they yeah. take a little time to get their documents. So yes, make sure that your client base is getting their, or your potential clients are getting the documents ready for sure. Yep. And if you read the actual opinion, it seems like Supreme Court almost outlines exactly what the Trump administration needs to do to rescind um, the executive order for DACA. And so we really do need to be paying attention to what's happening um, kind of with the Supreme Court, with the Trump administration. Um, They're, um, you know, right now in Texas, um, the runoff between the primaries is happening um, and the election is November 3rd. And I'm going to do a plug in for voting right quick, just because I think it's really important. Um, who you vote in has an impact on what laws get laws are put in place in your home state, as well as kind of nationally, right? Um, the Supreme Court has said time and time again um, that Congress gets to make most of the immigration decisions. So who you put into Congress is going to help determine whether or not we're going to have immigration reform come this new legislature. Um, how we elect or in, who we elect as our official is going to have an impact on whether or not DACA can become an actual Dream Act law. Um, and so that really does matter um, because the Supreme Court does not like to rule on immigration cases unless it implicates a constitutional issue. Um, and so um, if something is done against the constitution, right. they'll come in, but otherwise they're going to say Congress, Congress made, chose to not have a law or chose to have a law with these limitations and therefore we're not gonna be involved. Well, and so your officials make a difference. For sure, absolutely. Thank you for mentioning that voting in this November general election. Uh, and make sure that you're check online if your address is current, because I want to make sure it'll be such a hassle to go to a different polling place, especially after what we heard in, um, I think it was Kentucky. Kentucky. State, or hopefully no longer his state. Um, <laughs> but uh, let's see. Well, yeah. it, it's not just the president, right? I mean, even for judges, you know, and you know, I'm a Democrat, but uh, you know, this 2020 <laughs> when we're recording this, who knows what's going to happen in the future, right? Different policy right. changes. But, um, and I mean, hey, judges are important to look for, you know, don't just go red or blue, honestly, because most judges I know, at least 99% of them, they don't go into their inherently people are going to have some kind of bias, right? But they're most judges I know don't use that bias within the case itself, the facts. So um, please but consider, can. You know, look at their behavior, how they act in public, especially with Facebook these days. 
in the social media, that's very important to know their true test of character, um, especially with a bunch of quote unquote Karens out there. So hopefully we don't have any judges. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's really important to kind of think about um, when you're voting, um, think about your local officials too, because local officials are going to determine who becomes the like help becomes the police chief commissioner um your local city council is going to be doing that your local city council is going to be working on what the city does in response to problematic issues right um being in dallas dallas was kind of on the news hardcore right after um the protests happened um because of what happened on the bridge um margaret i always yeah. get it wrong i know margaret yeah, yeah at bridge deferring facts there. Yeah, and I mean, even the day before that, when protests were going on, um, tear gas was allowed to be used and it hadn't been, he hadn't been even preemptively been okayed for over 30 years and it was preemptively okayed for the protests. Um, if you historically look at contact and just look through history and you look through qualitative and quantitative studies, if you show up in riot gear, you are inciting violence. Um, and, and when a peaceful protest is happening and police officers show up in riot gear, mm -hmm. it is never gonna be a positive result. And so that's why voting matters because it it helps elect the city officials that put these individuals in charge. Um, yeah. And I, I bring this all up because of the protests, for a lot of the protests, not all, all the protests were happening based on the Black Lives Matter movement. and because we do need to effectuate change. Um, and the Black Lives Matter movement is happening because of situations of white supremacy. Um, and I bring this up because immigration is rooted in white supremacy. Those laws and rules have been rooted in white supremacy and who's been allowed in our country and why they've been allowed in um, versus who hasn't been. Um, and so it's really important to think about because that actually affects change on the local level, which then changes nationally. Um, Children, for example, most of my clients come from the Northern Triangle. So you're talking about Honduras, El Salvador, um, Guatemala. Um, and, and so you're talking about countries that are um, in Central America, Central, and, and their visa numbers for when they have a green card available are right now, we're looking at 2017, February 1st, 2017. Um, and that's because countries like that are a lot of the same amount of green cards um, or less than other countries. Um, and so we have to really understand how our officials can change those laws and make it better for people. Right, the, um, you're referring to wait time, there is a visa bulletin that people can refer to if they Google search Department of State visa bulletin that, that will show based on the different relationship categories, preference categories we call it, and which country they're from. So it gets updated every month. Mm -hmm. And. The, Sometimes it doesn't move, right? So I think for the category that my clients fall under, um, the priority date was August 15th, 2016 for almost a year. Oh, wow. Like every month I checked, it still said August 15th, 2016. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't change sometimes. And so you're just sitting and waiting and clients are waiting to apply for their green card, even though on paper they're eligible, they just can't because they don't have the time available. Their time isn't set yet. So what you say, wouldn't you say that this is one of the ways that uh, executive branch or president can somehow delay the legal immigration? These. Um, wait, can you repeat that question? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The, wouldn't you agree that, um, that this is one of the possible ways that a Trump president, any president can delay 
the next step of processing for someone to receive the resident card, right? That, you know, the yeah, public wouldn't really know. Yeah, technically they're not supposed to be able to because they're right. supposed to, they're, it's under the executive branch, but they're not, and they're not supposed to be able to, but they can um, because they put in inner office memos or guidelines. Um, if you are reading the news and following immigration, USCIS, which is your basically administrative arm of immigration, um, furloughed thousands of employees. Um, so that means how fast cases are going to get processed is going to be slow actually it's not going to be fast it's going to go longer time um, to process cases because now instead of having 10,000 employees you have 1,000 reviewing the same amount of applications um, and those are just general numbers I, I don't actually know the numbers of how right. many individuals work at yeah. USCIS yeah. but um, that and so yes the president can have an impact on all of this because if you're delaying how many people can review cases that means you're delaying who can review visa uh, green card applications, um, how many green cards are going to be issued right now, um, and so forth. So mm -hmm. um, the president can have an impact on that. And they have an impact on just the immigration system as a whole because um, the Executive Office, Executive Office of Immigration Review, or EOIR as we call it, and the Department of Justice, or DOJ, um, kind of fall under the executive branch, and they have an impact um, on immigration courts and how immigration courts are run. Um, and the judges that are supposed to be neutral arbiters are not neutral arbiters because um, they're under the executive branch. So we can't hold them liable the way we would um, judges under the judicial branch. Um, they don't get held to the same standard. Um, so, and that comes from the presidential review, right? So the president can say, you need to, um, close out this many cases and he has been issuing those orders to judges and so judges are going through fast dockets like this saying sorry I've heard I've seen you twice and it might be twice in a matter of 30 days so you don't have that much time to compile things you haven't gotten everything ready I'm closing your case out I'm ordering you removed um, and that's because he or she as a judge gets a message from their supervisors who are under the executive branch who are under the president um, that say you need to close out this many cases um, and so that does affect anyone's immigration right. status or how they get to stay or how mm -hmm. fast they can stay, how fast it takes for them to obtain the documentation to stay. Right. And then one of the, I know some judges don't want to do the rocket docket, people call it, but, um, you know, I think you're talking about that, that policy was based on uh, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, but, uh, you know, yeah, they have the power to, even if a, so some people may not know, but you have the EOIR immigration court then the next level if you want to appeal is a board of immigration appeals and that's a panel of judges not that the pa those panels provide any great decisions but when they do the attorney general has the power to even go back like before his time in office to change decisions essentially to whatever he wants wide-ranging discretion so that's one of the ways good point and the other way is um you mentioned rocket docket you know that has forced judges I've seen in my, my docket where normally if a case is at 8.30, you get the whole morning. That was pre-President Trump. Now it's a judge has an 8.30 and then maybe a 10.30 or 11. But then at the yep. 11, they have about an hour, hour and a half. And, you know, everyone has to eat some kind of, eat something at lunch, right? So it causes <laughs> a horrible ripple effect for everyone, honestly. Right. And, I mean, you see... And just so everyone knows, Rocket Docket is when they're trying to rush through the cases um, instead of trying to give you the amount of allotted time um, or proper time that would make sense um, because they're 
the immigration and the executive branch are using your the number of appearances you have in court as a way to say you haven't been working on your case or are unable to provide a proper form of relief. Um, and to John's point, if you are, say, a survivor of trauma or abuse in your home country and are seeking protection in the U.S. to be able to show that this happened to me, I was persecuted, I have a fear of persecution because of this, an hour of time is not going to be enough because you can tell your story and that could take up an hour because of what has happened to you. And then to put on witnesses and evidence to show that it, your, um, what happened to you is corroborated can take longer. And so if they only give you an hour, you may not be able to um, effectively show your credibility or corroboration, which could then have the judge say, sorry, I'm denying your case. Um, and that puts a lot of administrative hurdles and a lot of um, legal hurdles onto the client's case because then appeals can take a really long time. Well, also, I mean, you have, it's almost a double testimony in a way because you have, most people have an interpreter. So it, it really essentially doubles or two and a, one and a half times the, uh, two and a half times the length yeah. of the testimony for sure. Um, so yeah, it's definitely created and, a burden on really both sides, I think. Uh, right. Because, you know, you, you look at the attorney, the attorneys for DHS, you know, they have to prepare for two cases or make potentially four. I'm sure they divvy it up appropriately, but it's just getting nonsensical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, imagine like if you're a 14 year old who has to talk about his or her trauma, it's going to be even harder because you're younger and, and haven't, you're still trying to develop the coping skills um, and trying to develop how to talk to in front of a judge or talk about what happened to you um, or potentially still going through therapy. And then um, you have to speak through an interpreter. Um, and, and like John said, I mean, if I'm talking an interpreter is interpreting everything I'm saying to the judge and the judge says something or the government attorney says something, you know, what would take an hour just in the child's native tongue could take two hours total to actually um, relay. Just to transition back to our audience of, you know, less experienced attorneys or law students just out, coming out of law school. Um, you know, do you have any tips in general for how they can become a better lawyer? if they haven't had specific experiences, experiential courses in law school or clinic? Yeah, I mean, I will tell you, when I first became a lawyer, I had never litigated. Um, you know, I did the little practice mock session for legal research writing, but outside of that, and like in a, in a clinic, I had to do something in court too, but outside of that, it wasn't much. So I incur I know that it is really hard to cold call attorneys and I know it's really hard to feel like you don't know what's happening, but I encourage um, young lawyers and law school students um, to always cold email or cold call attorneys. The worst that can happen is they say no or they don't respond to you. Um, and in which case they don't know you, so it makes no difference. Um, and then ask them, can I shadow you to court? Can I, can I, can I shadow you to court because I want to see what this is like, um, or offer your time like, Hey, I'd love to help on this case. What can I do? Um, I, or just go to court and sit in on hearings. Um, you know, I work in front of the, in the children's program, but, um, the interns or externs we have in the other programs, they don't go to court as often. So I encourage all of them to follow me to court and watch me in court. Um, and I don't necessarily enjoy having an audience, but you know, I know that I was in their shoes at one point. Um, and so I would encourage individuals just kind of do things that are outside of your comfort zone. Um, 
there are things like the Dallas Volunteers Attorney Program, and I think Houston has a similar program um, where there are mentors there and um, that will help and gu help guide you to take on these cases. HRI does the same thing. We mentor you through all your cases. And so if you don't have experience and want to try to get it, you have someone that will kind of really walk you through it all. Um, I tend to um, accompany my uh, pro bono attorneys to their first hearings every time. So that means if they are scared they're going to mess up, I am there to make sure they don't. Um, I make, I'm there to make sure that if they get asked a tough question they don't have to answer, I'm right behind them to help whisper an answer into their ear or how to respond to the judge. But it allows young attorneys to get in front of a judge to see what that's like, to understand whether litigation is their thing, um, and you know, give them that experience that they probably wouldn't have gotten otherwise. No, that's that's excellent advice. That's actually been fairly coincidentally common common advice from others or other guests. So, um, but yeah, just going out there. I I went out when I first practiced. I went to Dallas Immigration Court just observe and you know judges will ask you oh, who are you because they just want to make sure if you're on a docket or not. But you could just say you're observing. Observing. You're wanting yeah, and I, I think judges would appreciate that. I've I've heard that before. <clears throat> and I remember when I took my first gig here. Um, I think within two weeks I had to do a protective order hearing and I had never litigated. I had really never been in front of a judge and now I'm here trying to get my client a protective order. And it was, it was definitely nerve wracking, but like I spent a whole, my whole first week going to court almost every day and observing and write, taking notes on like what things people would say. I went right. to criminal court and saw protective order hearings in criminal court too, um, to see what kind of like evidence they'd put on. So I could try to muster up the courage to try to get as much evidence in a week's time. Cause I only had two weeks, um, and see what I could do, but the observations helped a lot. For sure. No, that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Anna. I, I know our audience has learned a lot and, I expect you to be on the show again because um, I, you know, there's so much to ask, especially with the new changes in the law that it could affect our client base. I mean, we both practice immigration law, but for those who are volunteering, they, they need to know as well in case it comes up. Yeah. In this but Anna, Definitely. thank you so much. And yeah, we'll see you again. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you for watching Lawyer Up. I hope you learned something from today that you can share with others. If you enjoyed today's content, please click subscribe below and click the bell to receive notifications for our next episode. Expect an episode every Monday by 8 a.m. We'll even drop bonus episodes during the week. We have an amazing lineup of leaders and entrepreneurs ready to share their life's work to make a difference. Hey everyone, if you have any questions or comments, please type that down below and we'll answer them as soon as we can. Thank you very much. We'll see you 